Book Three, Sections Four through Six of King Cole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. King Cole by Upton Sinclair. Book Three, The Henchmen of King Cole. Section Four. Mr. Richard Parker was busy, said the clerk in the outer office, for which Hal was not sorry, as it gave him a chance to get his breath. Seeing a young man flushed and panting, the clerk stared with curiosity, but Hal offered no explanation, and the breaker of teeth waited on the street outside. Mr. Parker received his caller in a couple of minutes. He was a well-fed gentleman, with generous neck and chin, freshly shaved and rubbed with talcum powder. His clothing was handsome, his linen immaculate, one got the impression of a person who did himself well. There were papers on his desk, and he looked preoccupied. "'Well,' said he, with a swift glance at the young miner, "'I understand that I am speaking to the district attorney of Pedro County?' "'That's right.' "'Mr. Parker, have you given any attention to the circumstances of the North Valley disaster?' "'No.' said Mr. Parker. Why? I have just come from North Valley, and I can give you information which may be of interest to you. There are a hundred and seven people entombed in the mine, and the company officials have sealed it, and are sacrificing those lives. The other put down the correspondence, and made an examination of his collar from under his heavy eyelids. How do you know this? I left there only a few hours ago. The facts are known to all the workers in the camp. You are speaking from what you heard? I am speaking from what I know at first hand. I saw the disaster. I saw the pit-mouth boarded over and covered with canvas. I know a man who was driven out of camp this morning for complaining about the delay in starting the fan. It has been over three days since the explosion and still nothing has been done. Mr. Parker proceeded to fire a series of questions, in the sharp, suspicious manner customary to prosecuting officials. But Hal did not mind that. It was the man's business to make sure. Presently he demanded to know how he could get corroboration of Hal's statements. "'You'll have to go up there,' was the reply." You say the facts are known to the men. Give me the names of some of them. I have no authority to give their names, Mr. Parker. What authority do you need? They will tell me, won't they? They may and they may not. One man has already lost his job. Not every man cares to lose his job. You expect me to go up there on your bare say-so? I offer you more than my say-so. I offer an affidavit. But what do I know about you? You know that I worked in North Valley, or you can verify the fact by using the telephone. My name is Joe Smith, and I was a miner's helper in number two. But that was not sufficient, said Mr. Parker. His time was valuable, and before he took a trip to North Valley, he must have the names of witnesses who would corroborate these statements. "'I offer you an affidavit!' exclaimed Hal. 
I say that I have knowledge that a crime is being committed, that a hundred and seven human lives are being sacrificed. You don't consider that a sufficient reason for even making inquiry? The district attorney answered again that he desired to do his duty, he desired to protect the workers in their rights, but he could not afford to go off on a wild-goose chase. He must have the names of witnesses. And Howe found himself wondering, was the man merely taking the first pretext for doing nothing? Or could it be that an official of the state would go as far as to help the company by listing the names of troublemakers? In spite of his distrust, Hal was resolved to give the man every chance he could. He went over the whole story of the disaster. He took Mr. Parker up to the camp, showed him the agonized women and terrified children crowding about the pit-mouth, driven back with clubs and revolvers. He named family after family, widows and mothers and orphans. He told of the miners clamoring for a chance to risk their lives to save their fellows. He let his own feelings sweep him along. He pleaded with fervor for his suffering friends. "'Young man,' said the other, breaking in upon his eloquence, "'how long have you been working in North Valley?' "'About ten weeks.' "'How long have you been working in coal mines?' "'That was my first experience.' "'And you think that in ten weeks you have learned enough to entitle you to bring a charge of murder against men who have spent their lives in learning the business of mining?' "'As I have told you,' exclaimed Hal, "'it's not merely my opinion. It's the opinion of the oldest and most experienced of the miners. I tell you, no effort whatever is being made to save those men. The bosses care nothing about their men.' One of them, Alec Stone, was heard by a crowd of people to say, Damn the men, save the mules. Everybody up there is excited, declared the other. Nobody can think straight at present. You can't think straight yourself. If the mine's on fire, and if the fire is spreading to such an extent that it can't be put out, but Mr. Parker, how can you say that it's spreading to such an extent? Well, how can you say that it isn't? There was a pause. "'I understand there's a deputy mine inspector up there,' said the district attorney, suddenly. "'What's his name?' "'Carmichael,' said Hal. "'Well, and what does he say about it?' "'It was for appealing to him that the miner Hussar was turned out of camp.' "'Well,' said Mr. Parker, and there came a note into his voice by which Hal knew that he had found the excuse he sought. "'Well, it's Carmichael's business, and I have no right to butt in on it. If he comes to me and asks for indictments, I'll act, but not otherwise. That's all I have to say about it.' And Hal rose. "'Very well, Mr. Parker,' said he. "'I have put the facts before you. I was told you wouldn't do anything.' but I wanted to give you a chance. Now I'm going to ask the governor for your removal. And with these words the young miner strode out of the office. End of Section 4 Section 5 
Hal went down the street to the American Hotel, where there was a public stenographer. When this young woman discovered the nature of the material he proposed to dictate, her fingers trembled visibly, but she did not refuse the task, and Hal proceeded to set forth the circumstances of the sealing of the pit-mouth of Number 1 Mine at North Valley, and to pray for warrants for the arrest of Enos Cartwright and Alec Stone. Then he gave an account of how he had been selected as check weighman, and been refused access to the scales, and with all the legal phraseology he could rake up, he prayed for the arrest of Enos Cartwright and James Peters, superintendent and tipple boss at North Valley, for these offenses. In another affidavit he narrated how Jeff Cotton, Camp Marshall, had seized him at night, mistreated him, and shut him in prison for thirty-six hours without warrant or charge. Also how Cotton, Pete Hannon, and two other parties by name unknown, had illegally driven him from the town of North Valley, threatening him with violence, for which he prayed the arrest of Jeff Cotton, Pete Hannon, and the two parties unknown. Before this task was finished, Billy Keating came in, bringing the twenty-five dollars which Edstrom had got from the post office. They found a notary public, before whom Hal made oath to each document, and when these had been duly inscribed and stamped with the seal of the state, he gave carbon copies to Keating, who hurried off to catch a mail train which was just due. Billy would not trust such things to the local post office for Pedro was the hell of a town, he declared. As they went out on the street again, they noticed that their bodyguard had been increased by another husky-looking personage, who made no attempt to conceal what he was doing. Hal went around the corner to an office bearing the legend, J. W. Anderson, Justice of the Peace. Jim Anderson, the horse doctor, sat at his desk within. He had evidently chewed tobacco before he assumed the ermine, and his reddish-colored mustache still showed the stains. Hal observed such details, trying to weigh his chances of success. He presented the affidavit describing his treatment in North Valley, and sat waiting while his honor read it through with painful slowness. Well said the man at last. What do you want? I want a warrant for Jeff Cotton's arrest. The other studied him for a minute. No, young fellow, said he, you can't get no such warrant here. Why not? Because Cotton's a deputy sheriff. He had a right to arrest you. To arrest me without a warrant? How do you know he didn't have a warrant? He admitted to me that he didn't. Well, whether he had a warrant or not, it was his business to keep order in the camp. You mean he can do anything he pleases in the camp? What I mean is, it ain't my business to interfere. Why didn't you see Cy Adams up to the camp? They didn't give me any chance to see him. Well, replied the other, there's nothing I can do for you. You can see that for yourself. What kind of discipline could they keep in them camps if any fellow that had a kick could come down here and have the marshal arrested? 
"'Then a camp marshal can act without regard to the law?' "'I didn't say that.' "'Suppose he had committed murder. Would you give a warrant for that?' "'Yes, of course, if it was murder.' "'And if you knew that he was in the act of committing murder in a coal camp, would you try to stop him?' "'Yes, of course.' "'Then here's another affidavit,' said Hal and he produced the one about the sealing of the mine. There was silence while Justice Anderson read it through. But again he shook his head. No, you can't get no such warrants here. Why not? Because it ain't my business to run a coal mine. I don't understand it, and I'd make a fool of myself if I tried to tell them people how to run their business. Hal argued with him. Could company officials in charge of a coal mine commit any sort of outrage upon their employees and call it running their business? Their control of the mine in such an emergency as this meant the power of life and death over a hundred and seven men and boys. Could it be that the law had nothing to say in such a situation? But Mr. Anderson only shook his head. It was not his business to interfere. Hal might go up to the courthouse and see Judge Denton about it. So Hal gathered up his affidavits and went out to the street again, where there were now three husky-looking personages waiting to escort him. End of Section 5 Section 6 the district court was in session, and Hal sat for a while in the courtroom, watching Judge Denton. Here was another prosperous and well-fed-appearing gentleman, with a rubicund visage shining over the top of his black silk robe. The young miner found himself regarding both the robe and the visage with suspicion. Could it be that Hal was becoming cynical and losing his faith in his fellow-man? What he thought of, in connection with the judge's appearance, was that there was a living to be made sitting on the bench while one's partner appeared before the bench as coal company counsel. In an interval of the proceedings, Hal spoke to the clerk, and was told that he might see the judge at 4.30. But a few minutes later, Pete Hannon came in and whispered to this clerk. The clerk looked at Hal, then he went up and whispered to the judge. At 4.30, when the court was declared adjourned, the judge rose and disappeared into his private office, and when Hal applied to the clerk, the latter brought out the message that Judge Denton was too busy to see him. But Hal was not to be disposed of in that easy fashion. There was a side door to the courtroom, with a corridor beyond it, and while he stood arguing with the clerk, he saw the rubicund visage of the judge flit past. He darted in pursuit. He did not shout or make a disturbance, but when he was close behind his victim, he said quietly, Judge Denton, I appeal to you for justice. The judge turned and looked at him, his countenance showing annoyance. What do you want? It was a ticklish moment, for Pete Hannon was at Hal's heels, 
and it would have needed no more than a nod from the judge to cause him to collar Hal. But the judge, taken by surprise, permitted himself to parley with the young miner, and the detective hesitated and finally fell back a step or two. Hal repeated his appeal. Your Honor, there are a hundred and seven men and boys now dying up at the North Valley Mine. They are being murdered, and I am trying to save their lives. Young man, said the judge, I have an urgent engagement down the street. Very well, replied Hal. I will walk with you and tell you as you go. Nor did he give his honor a chance to say whether this arrangement was pleasing to him. He set out by his side, with Pete Hannon and the other two men some ten yards in the rear. Hal told the story as he had told it to Mr. Richard Parker, and he received the same response. Such matters were not easy to decide about. They were hardly a judge's business. There was a state official on the ground, and it was for him to decide if there was violation of law. Hal repeated his statement that a man who made a complaint to this official had been thrown out of camp. And I was thrown out also, Your Honor. What for? Nobody told me what for. Tut, tut, young man, they don't throw men out without telling them the reason. But they do, Your Honor. Shortly before that they locked me up in jail, and held me for thirty-six hours without the slightest show of authority. You must have been doing something. What I had done was to be chosen by a committee of miners to act as their check weighman. Their check weighman? Yes, Your Honor. I am informed there's a law providing that when the men demand a check weighman and offer to pay for him, the company must permit him to inspect the weights. Is that correct? It is, I believe. And there's a penalty for refusing? The law always carries a penalty, young man. They tell me that law has been on the statute books for fifteen or sixteen years, and that the penalty is from twenty-five to five hundred dollars fine. It's a case about which there can be no dispute, Your Honor. The miners notified the superintendent that they desired my services, and when I presented myself at the tipple, I was refused access to the scales. Then I was seized and shut up in jail, and finally turned out of the camp. I have made affidavit to these facts, and I think I have the right to ask for warrants for the guilty men. Can you produce witnesses to your statements? I can, Your Honor. One of the committee of miners, John Edstrom, is now in Pedro, having been kept out of his home, which he had rented and paid for. The other, Mike Sicoria, was also thrown out of camp. There are many others at North Valley who know all about it. There was a pause. Judge Denton, for the first time, took a good look at the young miner at his side. And then he drew his brows together in solemn thought, and his voice became deep and impressive. I shall take this matter under advisement. What is your name, and where do you live? Joe Smith, Your Honor. I'm staying at Edward McKellar's, but I don't know how long I'll be able to stay there. 
There are company thugs watching the place all the time. That's wild talk, said the judge impatiently. As it happens, said Hal, we are being followed by three of them at this moment, one of them the same Pete Hannon who helped to drive me out of North Valley. If you will turn your head, you will see them behind us. But the portly judge did not turn his head. I have been informed, Hal continued, that I am taking my life in my hands by my present course of action. I believe I am entitled to ask for protection. What do you want me to do? To begin with, I'd like you to cause the arrest of the men who are shadowing me. It's not my business to cause such arrests. You should apply to a policeman. I don't see any policeman. Will you tell me where to find one? His honor was growing weary of such persistence. Young man, what's the matter with you is that you've been reading dime novels, and they've got on your nerves. But the men are right behind me, Your Honor. Look at them. I've told you it's not my business, young man. But, Your Honor, before I can find a policeman I may be dead. The other appeared to be untroubled by this possibility. And, Your Honor, while you are taking these matters under advisement, the men in the mine will be dead. Again there was no reply. I have some affidavits here, said Hal. Do you wish them? You can give them to me if you want to, said the other. You don't ask me for them? I haven't yet. Then just one more question, if you will pardon me, Your Honor. Can you tell me where I can find an honest lawyer in this town? A man who might be willing to take a case against the interests of the General Fuel Company? There was a silence, a long, long silence. Judge Denton, of the firm of Denton and Vagelman, stared straight in front of him as he walked. Whatever complicated processes might have been going on inside his mind, his judicial features did not reveal them. No, young man he said at last. It's not my business to give you information about lawyers. And with that the judge turned on his heel and went into the Elks Club. End of Section 6